Welcome to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. My name is Sarah Tranum, and I'm the host of this series that explores some of the most complex challenges we face and examines them through a design and systems thinking lens. The goal of the podcast is to better understand deep systemic issues and to learn about the socially innovative approaches being used to address and resolve them and that can help us design a more humane future for everyone. In this first pilot episode in the series, we'll look at the food system, the challenges that existed well before the pandemic and that have been magnified during it. We'll examine some of the fundamental issues underpinning the modern food system and learn about the various stakeholders working to realign the production, distribution, and consumption of food with the natural cycles so that we can meet our food needs while helping to heal the earth and our connection to it. We'll focus on an exciting pilot project called Our Food Future, taking place in Canada in the city of Guelph and the surrounding Wellington County, which are located in the province of Ontario. You'll hear from a number of stakeholders working to develop Canada's first circular food economy, which is poised to become a new model for other communities across Canada and beyond. The level of collaboration taking place is truly inspiring and offers a glimpse into what the future food system can look like that is sustainable and equitable. So that's coming up. But first, we'll start by looking at the connections between design and food. Let's look at a simple example, an apple. An apple itself is not a human-made design. You can find a wild apple tree that grows apples without any human intervention. But just about everything else about an apple, particularly one that reaches our kitchens, has been changed and adapted to fit within the modern food system, which is very much a human design. Apples produced for mass consumption have been bred for taste, size, pest resistance, grown in orchards engineered for ease of maintenance and harvest, and distributed to food warehouses and supermarkets designed for optimal profit and consumer convenience. The packaging, marketing, and merchandising of apples are designed to fit our modern food needs and expectations. And then there are all the products made from apples that require additional processing. The production and promotion of these food products, all by design. Why is this significant? Well, if food and the system that encompasses it is a design, then it can be redesigned, and that offers great hope for creating a better model going forward. The rest of this episode focuses on understanding the challenges in the current system and how it can be redesigned. Like just about everything in our industrial economy, the food system has evolved into a linear model of take-make-waste. We take from the ground the nutrients needed to grow food, we make it into a myriad of things that fill supermarket shelves, and then consume it, thinking little of the waste produced. This linear model is out of sync with the cycles seen throughout nature, and that were inherent in farming practices for thousands of years. Traditionally, small farmers relied on tried-and-true practices that included using organic manure from their livestock, rotating crops and fields each season in order to nourish the soil, and growing a diversity of things to help keep pests in check and the farm in balance. These methods have changed as many small farms were forced to grow to survive, and some evolved into large factory farming operations in which only one or two crops are grown over thousands of acres, where synthetic fertilizers are used and pesticides, growth hormones, and genetically modified organisms are relied upon to increase yield and profit. The result has been poor soil health, a lack of biodiversity, and significant contribution to climate change. A conservative estimate is that Canadian agriculture is responsible for 10% of greenhouse gas emissions. Increasingly, farmers are sounding the alarm about climate change. Organizations like Farmers for Climate Solutions point to drought, unseasonable cold snaps, and extreme weather events, the symptoms of climate change, and their disproportionate impact on farmers' livelihoods and the very future of farming. 
Organizations like these are calling on governments to support farmers to be able to invest in equipment and make other changes needed to move away from high emissions farming practices to climate-friendly ones. Luckily in Canada, especially in Ontario, the majority of farms are still family-owned and are at a scale where restorative circular practices can still be used. However, more support is needed to help farmers become less reliant on fossil fuels, fertilizers, pesticides, and other inputs. As with any other business, equipment updates are costly, and the amount of debt that's carried by many farmers can make the desire to reduce the carbon footprint of their operations financially out of reach. The Wellington Federation of Agriculture, or the WFA, is an organization that represents farmers in Wellington County and is advocating for more support to help farms make needed upgrades that can help curb climate change and keep their bottom line healthy. Janet Harrop is a president of the WFA and is a farmer. Along with her husband Ian and son Ryan, they operate Harcroft Acres, a 120-cow dairy farm located in Fergus, Ontario. Janet talks about the challenges that farmers face who are interested in a circular food economy but are also navigating complex systemic issues like global competition, commodity pricing, and consumer expectations, which can make the integration or reintegration of more sustainable practices difficult to implement. As we see more of a consumer's desire to buy more local foods, uh, that's become really evident in the last year. Their interest in transparency, accountability, and sustainability is really in the forefront and has always been important, but is even more important to producer and producer organizations. So it's really making everybody reflect around their practices, the sustainability of these practices, and the transparency of what we're doing. I think that's all really important. Important. Farmers don't talk a lot about the great things that they are already doing to improve soil health through sequestering carbon, different animal health and comfort technologies. And there's a lot of research out there around farm practices that tell that regenerative story. We need to really marry this with the animal and plant genetics and practices that are more sustainable and keeping in mind that farms are businesses. A lot of them are multi million dollar businesses and they need to remain profitable. It's interesting in Canada, there's not a lot of federal support in terms of policy development or incentives. I always say if we could impact the federal treasuries in other countries, then we could compete more globally. But when we have other countries that we're competing with that have fail-safe programs, there's a lot of countries that have environmental stewardship programs that will provide incentive or set-aside dollars for farmers to leave land and just have a regenerative crop on that land to be able to feed wildlife and help to sequester carbon. We don't have that in Canada. And the price of land has continued to go up as we see people trying to find a place to invest their dollars. We're seeing such a move out of the urban centers into the rural environment that we're seeing more and more pressure on that. So we have to kind of marry the technologies. We need to understand the gaps that are happening on the farm from a technology perspective. And some of those capital items, there's some equipment I would love to be able to have on my farm that I know provide more of a regenerative practice. I can't afford them. 
There is a lot of work currently being done on healthy soils within the province. And the research is showing going away from that mono production kind of model and using at least two and ideally three or more different crops in rotation is self-sustaining from a carbon sequestration and a soil health perspective. I think it's an opportunity that we have some producers that have an abundance of nutrients and we have some that don't have enough. And there's systems that are being built to be able to one producer to buy manure off another producer to apply on their properties. I think there's a lot more understanding of what the issues are, even at a provincial level, for sure at a federal level. We're starting to actually hear from our provincial and federal parties that their understanding agriculture needs help and agriculture can be part of the greenhouse gas reduction. I think there's lots of great opportunities that we just need to continue to explore. As discussed, restorative practices like soil tilling, using organic manure, and growing and rotating various crops are often used in conventional farming. But there's a growing number of farmers going a step further. Many are embedding core principles of regenerative agriculture in their operations as a solution that can reduce the carbon footprint of farms, help increase profits, and become more resilient to the impacts of climate change. Regenerative agriculture intentionally realigns farming with the cycles found in nature. One of the proponents of regenerative agriculture is Nathan Smith, farmer and owner of Winterhill Farm and Garden, located in Aramosa, Ontario. He's one of the farmers participating in the Our Food Future circular food economy. He and his wife and business partner Jill use a CSA, or community-supported agriculture model, selling shares that provide a season's worth of organically grown vegetables from their 100-acre farm. Nathan discusses the regenerative farming methods they are using at Winterhill. So regenerative farming is basically better than sustainable. So sustainable means you can keep doing the exact same thing every year without a reduction, I guess, in production or environmental impact. Regenerative means it gets better every year. And essentially for us, our big thing is compost and permanent raised beds. That's how we apply this concept on our farm. There's other ways too. We do high density plant grazing. So that's considered regenerative. And what that does is that sequesters carbon from the atmosphere into the soil because we end up growing more topsoil each year. Because of all the grass, we end up growing and running it through our cattle. And what happens also is the roots of the grass grow bigger and bigger because they're perennial. They're more established year after year when you graze them properly. They end up pulling more carbon out of the atmosphere. But with respect to the vegetables, we do composting and permanent raised beds, which is essentially we don't till the same beds over and over again. We till them once and then we continually add compost year after year. So the soil just gets better and better as time goes on rather than depleting. We do what's called multi-cropping, which we run many crops through the same piece of land in a year, rather than one crop of corn, one crop of soybeans. And the reason we can do that is because our soil is so much better. Because we're taking care of it, because we're not tilling it all the time, and we're continually adding compost. So we did on three quarters of an acre, so not even one full acre, we were able to feed 50 families for 16 weeks. One thing we're interested in is conserving water on our farm, and that happens twofold, basically from grazing the cattle and building up the topsoil, and then all the rain doesn't run off as easily. That's one side. And the other side is we're looking at low flow irrigation, and then we're also installing drip tape this year, which will be new for us. And so that's even more efficient. Because then you're harnessing nature instead of working against it. And I think that's the big difference. Rather than trying to dominate it, which is the old conventional agricultural model, you're fighting weeds, you're spraying, you're killing things off. 
we're not doing that. Like in our pastures, for example, we don't use sprays ever. And whatever grows is whatever grows. You never see a monocrop in nature. Never. It doesn't exist. Everything is multiple species. And the reason is because they all play off each other. They all add to the overall ecosystem. These are all things that matter. Val Steinman and Brent Klassen own Hartwood Farm and Cidery, located in Erin, Ontario. They're also involved in the Our Food Future initiative. They've been working with the natural contours of the land to restore their farm into a habitat that promotes biodiversity and soil health. Val discusses the broad concerns about the depletion of topsoil and how farmers can look to nature to develop methods to regenerate the soil and reestablish the inherent interconnections between the earth, plants, animals, and people. I know a lot of the farmers that are working within all the different sectors, and all of us care about soil health. We all have lots to learn to make sure that our food production systems actually are regenerating instead of degenerating, because we do understand that if we continue the trends we're working with now, in 60 years from now, we won't have topsoil. That's something that is fairly well documented, and and so it's something that we have to do something about, and our natural cycles and natural systems give us a lot of tools to work with. So every farmer, regardless of what they're producing, on what scale, or what management system or methodology they're using, there are things that you can do to work with these principles, like biodiversity, or disturbing the soil less, keeping living roots in the soil as much of the year as possible and keeping the soil covered. So we've been, like a lot of different farmers, trying different things. It just so happens in our system, we are working mostly with perennials and we're working with grazing cattle. So we were able to increase biodiversity into our grazing fields by planting hedgerows. By putting them on contour, we're able to help restore the ability of the soil to hold water by slowing the water that would flow down the hill and off of our land is slowed down by these swales and berms and they take the water and they move it across to the high and dry shoulders of the land. Um, It's an experiment. In some parts of the world it's turned brittle landscapes into lush green landscapes because water is the most limiting nutrient of all. If you don't have enough water, it doesn't matter how rich your soil is. And in fact, your soil can't continue to be functioning and rich without the adequate water to feed the plants that feed the livestock or the wild animals. So all of these things are connected. These methods of working with the land have been used for millennia and are still relied upon by subsistence farmers throughout the world. Some critics argue that this scale of farming is inefficient and cannot meet the population's food needs. However, these critics not only fail to factor in the environmental destruction of large-scale farms on soil health and contributions to climate change and their measure of efficiency, they also don't include the tremendous waste of food that never makes it to the table. One estimate is that 40% of food is wasted in our current system. Part of this waste is overproduction as a result of subsidies and changes in demand, which was magnified during the early months of the pandemic. Around the world, we saw fields of onions plowed under, thousands of eggs and gallons of milk dumped with no place to take them because schools, hotels, and other institutions were closed, and the food distribution systems were unable to adjust quickly enough. Cher Merweather is the president and CEO of Provision Coalition, a company that works with food and beverage producers to grow by making food sustainably. Provision Coalition is a key stakeholder in our food future circular food economy. Cher discusses her team's work with food producers to identify and eliminate waste in their operations. 
so what we were looking at is, well, how do we leverage food loss and waste prevention as a means of resiliency through COVID? And we were really showcasing the results that we did last year in partnership with the Walmart Foundation. We did a study of 50 food and beverage processing and manufacturing sites. And across those 50 facilities, we found 9.3 million kilograms of food or beverage that was falling off the line or going down the drain and being wasted. And this was an annual number. And so when we looked at that and said, you know, the average to the individual company was $228,000 to their bottom line. So we really took those results and we said, in a time of crisis and in COVID, these stats are a really big deal. This is the difference between you being able to survive and thrive. And so we've really been promoting this concept of eliminate and prevent the waste that's happening in your operation. If you are diverting any form of food, that means you have waste in the system, that there should not be diversion. And so that's what our message has been through COVID. Meanwhile, as food goes to waste, people struggle to afford to eat. Food insecurity continues to grow during the pandemic. One in eight Canadians worry about their next meal. That includes one in six children who go hungry each day. In an expensive city like Toronto, it's worse, with one in five residents experiencing food insecurity. Toronto's Daily Bread Food Bank reported a 51% increase of food bank visits in July and August of 2020 compared to 2019. And there are still many neighborhoods that are food deserts or food mirages, meaning healthy food may be nearby, but it's economically out of reach for many of its residents. And we know that food insecurity does not impact everyone equally. Black and Indigenous households are more affected, as are single-family households led by women. Barb Schwartzentruber is the executive director of the Smart Cities office at the City of Guelph that includes the Our Food Future initiative. Barb discusses the challenges related to food waste and food insecurity and how we value food. Right now, we have a very linear, costly food system. Food travels across complex, interconnected, cross-border, long-distance production and supply chains, and that really increases the distance from farm to fork. And it also disconnects communities from local food producers or from, you know, being food producers themselves. But most important, there is tremendous waste built into every point in that food journey from processing to consumption. And it creates this crazy situation of overabundance on one hand and a lack of equitable access on the other. Supply and demand just aren't balanced. When you hear statistics like upwards of 40% of the food never makes it to the plate or that globally a billion people are hungry or undernourished. And in our region, the cost of healthy food has increased about 27% in just eight years and 17% of our households are food insecure in a really relatively affluent area. So that crazy situation of overabundance and lack of equitable access really comes down to the fact that we don't value food properly. Not only don't we value food properly, we don't value the people that produce the food, the people that are integral to getting the food to us, from the farmers who produce the food, to the truck drivers who deliver it, to the cashiers at the supermarkets. None of those folks are properly valued. And when it comes to thinking about food waste and food insecurity, 
our food security system or safety net right now is built on a charitable model. We donate food to food banks. Uh, we donate money. We collect food at the grocery store for food banks. And we also try to recover food that might be wasted and divert that to helping feed people who are food insecure. Really what we're doing is we're trying to make the best of an economic system and a food system that generates a lot of waste and does not adequately feed people. We're doing that rather than fixing the system that both creates the waste and that leaves people unable to access healthy, nutritious food. Not having enough to eat is an economic issue, but it's also a food system issue. Changing how we value food in order to create a more equitable and sustainable system is the basis of the circular economy. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation, a UK-based organization, was founded with the mission to help transform the global economy to a circular one, and defines the circular economy as based on the principles of designing out waste and pollution, keeping products and materials in use, and regenerating natural systems. As mentioned, Our Food Future is a regional initiative based in the city of Guelph in Wellington County. It is modeling a sustainable food system that addresses food security, creates business and broader economic development opportunities, and uses waste as a resource. This is a collaboration of a broad network of stakeholders, some of whose voices you've already heard here, from agriculture, businesses large and small, food sciences, as well as government agencies and universities. Here's Barb Schwarzentruber again from Our Food Future to explain the goals of this initiative. Over the next four years, our Food Future Initiative will be working on three interconnected goals, increasing access to affordable, nutritious food, creating new circular food businesses and collaborations that are really going to lead the transition to an inclusive and green economy, and not only preventing, but also finding new economic value from what we now consider to be waste. So our project, our initiative is really about system level change. And because of that, we have nine interconnected projects and a number of pilots underway. We really, we've turned Guelph Wellington into a rural urban living lab where entrepreneurs and food producers, researchers, data tech experts, and importantly, social innovators can collaborate to solve food system challenges. We're aiming to demonstrate what a good food community of the future might look like. And that's one that fully supports all people to lead healthy lives, that engages them in their community and enables them to participate in economic prosperity that is environmentally sustainable. So our success will be defined by our ability to demonstrate a range of interventions that are shareable, scalable, and replicable, and that taken all together show what a move from a linear to circular economy could look like at a community level and the value that it would provide to people, to our planet, and to our overall economy. Our Food Future received funding from the Government of Canada's Smart Cities program and was just officially launching in early 2020 as a pandemic and first lockdown happened. It responded by focusing on the most imminent needs in the community, which was food security, and began supporting projects that were working to make healthy food accessible to those who need it. Within this quick pivot, Our Food Future has also rolled out other innovative projects that engage the community in the circular economy. The Circular Meal is a tangible demonstration of the opportunities presented within a regional circular food model. Share Merweather Provision Coalition, which was a catalyst for the Circular Meal, explains the concept and its successes. 
So the circular meal actually came out of the Wellington Brewery, our purpose work. We went in there to transform the business strategy and really focus them and all their employees around how do we create a circular business. So we went in and worked on their strategy, worked in the operations, identified a number of ways to prevent beer from going down the drain, as an example. But what was really exciting was the fact that we identified that, obviously, in any brewery operation, there is spent grain at the end of production. It's an unavoidable waste byproduct. And so we sort of stood in this possibility of what if. What else can we do with the spent grain? At the time, they were sending it to livestock, so it's not that it was doing any harm, but we thought... These byproducts of this spent grain still has nutrient value. Is there a way for us to keep it in the human food system longer and recognize the value of those nutrients? We started the conversation actually with a local black soldier fly organization, and they have black soldier flies that just happen to eat spent grain as one of the ingredients. And they create a livestock supplement. And so then we thought, well, that's interesting. They're sending their black soldier fly supplement to a fish farm. I wonder if there would be an opportunity for us to make some connections. And could we actually create a whole meal out of this spent grain? And so we sent some of the spent grain to the black soldier fly farm. And then we thought, well, what else could we do with the spent grain? And it just so happened that we were also working with Escarpment Labs, which is a local yeast production facility. And they were talking about how they had spent yeast and beer byproduct in their process. And we thought, well, what if we could take those two pieces, the spent grain and the spent yeast, and actually create a bread out of it? And so we engaged with a local baker a grain revolution and talk to them about, you know, could you actually use these two spent byproducts and create a sourdough bread? And could that be part of our meal? And so they were curious and they started to play around with it. And then as we were working with Izumi Aquaculture, the local fish farm, they were talking about the fact that the detritus or the poop from the fish is actually really high in nutrients. And we thought, well, where else could we send that fertilizer and could we actually send it to a part of the meal? the part of the food that could also sit on the plate. So we engaged with a local potato farmer and they took the fish poop and put it on their potatoes. And then the piece that sort of connected everything together was uh, the neighborhood group, which is quite a large restaurant tour. They have five local restaurants in the city of Guelph. They're a B Corp certified organization, really progressive and so we went to Court, who's the CEO, and said, would you be open and receptive to trying to sell this circular meal on your menu? And so we gave chefs at three of the restaurants the fish, the potatoes, and the sourdough bread and let them work their magic. And that's how they came up with these three meals. It was launched at the Woolly Pub, at the Magida Cafe, and at Park Grocery in the city of Guelph. And the reception has been incredible. They actually sold a month's worth of inventory in the first week that it was offered. So it's by far exceeding our expectations. It's really exciting. Richard Priest of Escarpment Laboratories talks more about the role of yeast byproducts in a circular model. Breweries don't tend to reuse all of the yeast that's produced in their brews, so it does end up, for example, being a pretty major waste byproduct on the other end of breweries. And it's not something that they can just put down the drain because it's got a pretty high cost for treatment. So consequently, breweries have to separate their yeast and collect it and get it disposed of by a company or, you know, ideally find some kind of value-added use for the yeast. So, I mean, the classic example is Marmite, Vegemite, these yeast extract products where you have a food processor company taking yeast from a brewery 
and processing it, heating it, breaking it down even more and turning it into a food stuff. And like, that's awesome. That's a really awesome example of circularity in the yeast space. And then you have some of these new ideas like feeding the dead yeast to the soldier flies like they're doing with this food pilot with Orica Solutions. They're feeding yeast and spent grain to flies. The flies produce more flies, biomass, and then that's fed to fish. People tend to not want to eat the flies directly. So you can convert the flies into fish biomass pretty efficiently. The whole thing going from spent grain and yeast to animal biomass is way more efficient than it would be with pigs or cows. And then you end up with locally produced protein that is essentially carbon neutral or even positive, which is really cool to see. To talk about the final output that brought the circular meal to people's plates is Court Desital, president and group leader of the Neighborhood Group. The circular ingredients were showcased in three dishes on the menus at three of the five restaurants in the Neighborhood Group. I'll use our pub, the Woolly. The Woolly Pub in Guelph, simply we did a play on fish and chips. You always hear about the issues with the spent grain and, you know, can they get off the farms? Can they use it for pig feed, animal feed, et cetera, et cetera. And then that journey being able to go to Orca with the fly farm and the tie-in and learning about Izumi and the two years it took them to condition the water to be able to be suited for fish and taking the soldier fly larva, feeding to the fish, we're getting the fish and the uh, fish waste is then being used as a uh, manure for potatoes at Smoid Farm. And we're taking that fish, we're taking those potatoes. As I said, we're just making fish and chips. But then our baker, we have a, a gentleman who uh, rents space, uh, Dave McRae from Grain Revolution. We have a full bakery at the basement of one of our restaurants. And him being able to take that spent grain, which has always been a, a struggle to utilize spent grain to make bread that's not overly dense. And it's really dealing with the moisture content. So then finding a technique to be able to dehydrate all that spent grain, to remill it all, and to incorporate it into a bread. And we just use breadcrumbs to bread the fish. And then we lightly fry the fish and the breadcrumbs, throw in some small farms potatoes. And, you know, it's not like one of these dishes where people are like, oh, that's interesting, but it tastes tastes funny. You know, nobody would have known the difference. And that's the best part. It became one of our most popular dishes. And even more popular because of the story behind it. You know, simple play on foods. If, if people didn't know the story behind it, it would still have been a popular dish. But once people get to know it, they're fascinated by it. And then we had people coming from all over the place to check it out and to see it. And we did something similar at uh, Park Grocery, which we just took the trout, we smoked it. Dave had made um, a sourdough bread that was served with a smoked trout. And then at Majida, we did something different. We did a trout gravlax. So we cured the trout in the salt. And then we added some uh, crostini made from that spent grain. And then we incorporated the potato and created horseradish cream with the potato mixed in together. We were able to incorporate it three different ways in each of the restaurants and all unique on their own, all with a similar story. So you can see the versatility between the items and how creative the chefs can be with them, which is great. Lynn Broughton, owner of Tasty Tours, is integrating the circular meal into her virtual food tours, highlighting this collaboration of seven stakeholders who came together to illustrate how circularity in the food system works and its tasty results. I gathered a lot of footage about the process to make this fish meal, and I'm currently making a virtual tour, which would be modeled much like my tours would be, like, hello, you meet me, and then we go from one spot to the next. And you learn about the people and the place. And then at the end of the virtual tour, the meal is delivered to you along with some beer that started the whole process off. 
The power of the circular meal is that it's proving that this level of interconnectedness in the local food system is possible. It's an accessible way for the general public to experience circularity and what it can look and taste like. It's also a great example for the various players in the food industry to see how their individual actions towards sustainability can be exponentially scaled when linked at a systems level. Seeing the impacts at the systems level is critical for broad adoption of circular practices, particularly for those who are skeptical and wanting more quantitative evidence. This is another unique aspect of the Our Food Future initiative. It's not just a return to natural systems or traditional age-old practices, but integrates new technology and the use of data to further enhance the effectiveness of a circular food system. That's the sound of cows from Harcroft Acres, where Janet Harrop and her family-owned farm have embraced technologies like robotic milking, livestock pedometers, cloud-based cameras, and GPS. They're using data to increase their understanding of their animals and their land to increase the health and profitability of their farm. They're part of a generation of farmers now using precision agriculture technologies that also include things like aerial imaging using drones and automated soil sampling to help maximize a farm's potential. However, the use of technology goes beyond just farming and food production applications. It can also be a key part of reestablishing the public's trust in the food system. Share Merweather Provision Coalition talks about the role of data to bring transparency back into the food system through this circular model. The data side is critical. There's a lack of trust, I would say, in the food system today with consumers. And I believe that authentic data that is verified can actually build and support that trust. So that when we can transparently share, you know what, these are the challenges that we have in the food system. This is what we're working towards. Here's how we're improving. Then that notion of we see that you're trying, we see that your data is legitimate, and we see that there is progress happening is what I think the general consumer is really looking for. Acknowledgement that there's a problem, acknowledgement that we're working on it and proof that there's movement in the right direction. That's how I see data really playing a role, is that authenticity and that verification of what's happening in the food system so that there is not a black box about where does our food come from, what's in our food, how's it made, and what are you doing in terms of taking care of the people and the planet in the process. And so tell me that story, and I want to hear it authentically, and I want to know that what you're putting in the space is real. Our food future is just one example of the circular economy applied to a system, in this case food. But the circular model and circular design can be applied to any industry, product, or service. Imagine an economy built upon products made and services designed for their outputs to become inputs, with little or no waste, created to be regenerative and fed back into the system instead of a linear take-make-waste model, and aligned with our natural systems. Imagine if the idea of disruptive innovation was rescued from the clutches of Silicon Valley and redefined by businesses, organizations, and individuals not motivated purely by profits, but by making the circular economy more efficient and more equitable. And it's happening. It just needs to become the rule and not just the exception for how we design, make, and use things and our relationship with them. Inherent in the transition to circularity in the food system, and clearly illustrated in the Our Food Future initiative, is the return to connections between people and between people and the planet. Moving back to a locally rooted economy means bringing community back into the food cycle. Our Food Future is doing this by supporting community-driven initiatives like the Courtright Presbyterian Church. 
Located in the city of Guelph, this faith community has turned the land around its church into a series of gardens that are providing fresh produce to the surrounding neighborhood. Brian Watson from Cartwright talks about the church's garden and how a seed grant from Our Food Future is allowing it to expand its capacity and reach into the community. We had one bed, and so we, we just planted a mixture of stuff, and our intention was that when we harvested, we would put it on the table there and make it available to all the people that are coming through. There's a lot of, as you can see right now, there's a lot of dog walkers, and um, this this land gets used a lot. So that was sort of what I'll call year number two. Um, year number three would be this last year that just passed, and of course in the midst of aiming for the spring, we had our March lockdown and COVID. And what came to mind for me was, you know, what on earth is food security in Guelph going to look like in the fall? And what can we possibly do about that? So that was kind of the incentive and the push to do what we needed to do to remove the pea gravel out of bed two and bed three and fill them with uh, soil. And I, I checked with Hope House and Royal City Mission and found out that the staples that would be really helpful to them were potatoes, carrots, and onions. So our attempt was to grow as many potatoes, carrots, and onions as we could. And the good news is we harvested 750 pounds of potatoes. Um, carrots and onions, we still got to learn a few things about, but, but that's uh, hope, hope for that for next year. The main part of the seed grant allowed us to be able to do this. We couldn't have done this expansion without that. So what we presented was we want to at least double what we're doing this year. And we have the land. <laughs> we have a lot of land here. So, um, so what you're seeing now is because of that seed grant. A circular food economy that supports initiatives on the ground and connects community and healthy food just makes sense. Yet there are real barriers to transitioning from our current model and making the amazing work being done by Our Food Future scale to a national and global level. Even with a growing body of evidence that the economics work, it's the mindset and resistance to change that will be a challenge. Emily Hutter Kennedy is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of British Columbia. As an environmental sociologist, her teaching and research focus on consumption and the relationship between people and the environment. Emily discusses potential barriers for the broad adoption of circularity in the food system. I think that inertia is a really important sort of think about the way that agriculture involves so many institutions, whether it's sort of at the corporate level, they're used to a certain model of doing things all the way down to the farm level where you're used to a certain way of doing things. And transitioning to a circular economy involves changes all along that. It doesn't mean that the main actors in the food system are resistant to wanting to take on some of these circular economy solutions, but that doing so might feel complex and overwhelming. Another barrier to transitioning is cultural lack of familiarity with the very notion of circular economy. So I think if we're going to have widespread buy-in, there has to be a more clear vision of what the circular economy promises, what it can't promise, what engagement is needed. That sort of piece where different actors and institutions in society have an idea of what role they can play and what is needed 
needed or sort of expected of them in terms of changes and transformations. I think we can all understand how difficult it can be to try to transform daily life. You know, we've sort of been thrust into this pandemic-inspired change of how we do things, and it's really, it's not easy, right? It involves all sorts of speed bumps and curves that we didn't expect. And circular economy can be a bit more by design as opposed to by crisis. Barb from Our Food Future shares her thoughts on the challenges ahead, her optimism for this transition from a linear to a circular model, and the points of light she sees on the horizon for a future that includes a circular food economy in Canada and beyond. I am really thrilled about all the interest in the circular economy that's happening, uh, not only across Canada, but at the international level. The circular economy concept is really having its moment. It's becoming part of the zeitgeist. And there are so many interesting projects underway at the community level like ours, but also at the sectoral level. You see things like the Canada Plastics Pack and, you know, many other sectors like the mining sector are thinking about how to to incorporate circular principles and practices. I think that technology is making it easier for us to move to a new economy that enables product as service approaches that can reduce waste. And at the local government level, you're really seeing cities start to lead the way. They're beginning to create circular economy strategies, often building on ways they can divert waste from landfill. At the Ontario level, you're also seeing extended user responsibility moving forward for ensuring that the people that produce the products, the corporations are also responsible for reducing that and also recycling it. At the corporate and national level, there's a really important leadership coalition made up of international firms like Unilever, Danon, IKEA, and many others that are making commitments and supporting the work across Canada to become more circular and sustainable. They're really looking at how they can shift their business models to design for reuse at the outset. They're also looking downstream through their supply chains to make sure that they're supporting and sourcing from businesses that are implementing regenerative and environmental practices. And of course, at the federal level, Canada is hosting the World Circular Economy Forum this fall. And I think that's going to be a great opportunity to hear what others are doing around the world. The European Union is making massive investments in circular economy research and projects, but there's also so much interesting work coming out of the global south as well. So I think the opportunities are there. The challenges are that we we really need to think about how we create a national strategy to make this transition in Canada. That's going to require that we work at the local level, at the sectoral level, and the national level, and really make it a strategy that is unique to the Canadian landscape and to the environment that we work within. I'm a practical optimist. I think that you use opportunities when the system's in crisis or in flux, like we are at the moment because of the pandemic, to not go back to the way things were, but to move forward, to try new things, to address the issues that we all knew were there, but we really couldn't overcome because of the inertia that often sets in or the overwhelming nature of the problems that we're facing. But I really think that the food system reflects back to us the soul of our society 
our culture, our identity, and most importantly, our values. And if we continue on the path we're on globally right now, what I see reflected back is a pretty abysmal picture of humanity and of our future. But there's a saying, and this is really why we're doing this project, that if we rethink food, we can remake the world because new models and new opportunities in the food system actually have the power to reshape entire economies and address the imbalance in our environmental ecosystem and to create healthy, connected, resilient communities. More and more people are realizing that circular models are just a good thing. A circular food system is aligned with how nature works when humans are not interfering. A transition from linearity to circularity can curb climate change, produce more robust and truly innovative products and services. It can help businesses grow and, more importantly, allow us as individuals and communities to flourish. For this transition to take place, we must recognize our individual roles in pushing for change in the food system. This includes changing how we value food, from the people growing and harvesting it, to those who sell and bag our groceries, to the food that ends up going to waste in our kitchens and on restaurant plates. Demanding transparency requires us as consumers to uphold our end of the deal and be willing to pay more for food coming from producers who are taking the steps to care for their animals and for the land. Advocating for policies and leadership that prioritize funding and real supports for farmers to be able to fully embrace regenerative practices at various levels are all part of what needs to happen to realize a different food model going forward. Designing a circular economy that is locally rooted and human-scaled, one community at a time, can add up collectively to form an interconnected global circular food system. This regenerative system can become the basis for transitioning us to humane capitalism, a kinder, more equitable economic model and form of capitalism that can help us save our planet while allowing us to innovate and collaborate, to enjoy the fruits of our labor and of the earth, and to live more connected to nature and to one another. It's exciting to see the lessons that will be learned and shared by Our Food Future that can be brought into other communities around the world as we work together to imagine and design a humane future. Thank you to all the people interviewed for this episode, for sharing your time, expertise, and passion, and for your efforts to create a regenerative food system here in Canada that will benefit us all. Thank you to Justin Langill, who assisted with research, field interviews, editing, and was a great collaborator in the making of this pilot. To learn more about Our Food Future and those interviewed, follow the links included in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. Be sure to subscribe to listen to upcoming episodes in this series. Take care and be well.